Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 10th, 2015, and before introducing today's guest, I want to thank the 1,139 people who participated in the survey asking for your favorite episodes of 2014. That survey is now closed. You can go to econtalk.org and find links to the top 10 episodes of 2014 and other interesting information uh, I called from the survey. I particularly want to thank people who commented and made suggestions and uh, talked about um, econ talk and what it means to you. And it really uh, – it was moving for me and it reminds me of um, – how much how rewarding it is to be the host. So thank you so much. Uh, here are the top 10 episodes as voted by you um, in reverse order. Number 10 was a tie between Jonathan Haidt on The Righteous Mind and Thomas Piketty on Inequality and Capital in the 21st Century. Number 9 was William Easterly on The Tyranny of Experts. Number 8, Darren Asimoglu on Inequality, Institutions, and Piketty. Number seven, D.G. Myers on cancer, dying, and living. Number six was Nina Monk on poverty development and the idealist. Number five, Sam Altman on startups, venture capital, and the Y Combinator. Number four, Russ Roberts and Mike Munger on how Adam Smith can change your life. Number three, Brian Kaplan on college, signaling, and human capital. Number two was Mark Andreessen on venture capital and the digital future and the most popular episode – for 2014, your favorite, uh, on which appeared on 25% of the ballots, was Michael Munger on The Sharing Economy. Uh, every episode was named by at least 3% of the respondents, getting uh, a top five vote, which uh, makes me very happy. I want to thank all of you again for voting and for listening. So it's very appropriate that the number one episode was Michael Munger on the sharing economy because today's guest is Michael Munger of Duke University. His latest book, Choosing in Groups, Analytical Politics Revisited, written with his son Kevin Munger, is the subject of today's episode. Michael, Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk. It is as always a pleasure, and I, I am humbled and honored to, uh, to have won. Well, I don't know if you should be. It probably was rigged. I, you know, probably. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to thank my mom for voting four hundred times. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some. Maybe it could just be hacking. I don't know if it was literally rigged. Uh, we did have an interesting uh, issue about halfway through the survey. Uh, I responded, pointed out that I had left out through a weird typographical editing error one of the episodes, so I put that back in at that point, and so the final totals are prorated by percentage rather than by the actual number of votes. Um, so, you know, it's it's not – Pricewaterhouse probably is not going to sign off on this. There, there's some issues, but how appropriate because our today's topic is about how we choose in groups. Um, let's talk about that to start with. Why is that a challenge, choosing in groups? We choose in groups all the time. We figure out where to go out for dinner. Uh, when we're with a group of friends, what movie to watch, um, where to go on vacation with my family. Seems pretty straightforward. Uh, what are the challenges? We do it all the time. And like so many things that Hayek talked about, 
sometimes when we do something that we do all the time, we don't realize the sort of genius that's involved in things that we take for granted. So we as human beings do this really smoothly. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that choosing in groups or what I would call politics, I think my definition of politics is different from most people's, but politics is something that just comes really naturally to groups of human beings. And so it's it's almost on a par with Hayek's observation that if people actually understood markets, they would think of it as being one of the greatest of human achievements, but instead we take them for granted. Choosing in groups is something like the same thing. We do this really smoothly. We're naturally cooperators and rule followers, and the rules that we've come up with that we don't even think much about are terrific. And that's the uh, the marvelous part, but what's the hard part? What's the big deal? Why do you need a whole book to talk about it? I, I would need more than just <laughs> one to talk about it. There's a. I, I want to give credit to one of the philosophers about whom I feel most ambivalent, and that's Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He asked this great question, and that is, how can a man be both free and yet bound by wills not his own? Because when you choose in a group, unless the group is unanimous, it's likely that sometimes you're going to disagree with what they do. If you can only do one thing, even if it's going out for lunch, uh, we can only do one thing and we're going to choose as a group, we might well choose a place that's not my most preferred. So am, am I enslaved somehow by membership in this group? Now, I think that Rousseau's answer is terrifying and the result that he ends up giving uh, is a recipe for totalitarianism, but that's a great question. Eh, How can a man nit- be both free? such a nitpicker? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it, 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 the, the, the point is, it, it's a great question, and so um, what I want to define politics as is the will of the group is not the outcome. The will of the group is the way that it constitutes itself to decide. And politics is making a choice as a group and then following those rules that we agreed on in advance and then accepting the outcome because we followed the rules. So it's a mistake to say, and this is, this is close to what Rousseau said, but then he went on and said that there's this genie called the general will, that we're actually bound by it. And if I disagree with that, I'm mistaken. Whereas, in fact, sometimes... I don't want to do what the group wants, and I have to try to decide whether I still want to be a member of the group. But a group that constitutes itself chooses two things. We're going to decide as a group, and here's how we're going to decide how to decide. That's what a constitution is with a small c. And I should give credit, this is actually James Buchanan's definition. It took me 20 years to understand the sort of complexity and depth of Buchanan's later work on constitutions, again, small c constitutions, uh, I am converted. Now, I'm a, I'm a Buchananite. Uh, it's with work with Tulloch also, to be, to be, uh, to be clear, right? It's, you're talking about the calculus of consent in 1962. Uh, the calculus of consent was the optimistic part. The, the, the part after that, um, the limits of liberty, uh, Buchanan had several more books by himself, uh, including the book with, uh, Congleton, Politics by Principle, Not Design, uh, was a, a landmark. And it was, it was Buchanan himself that kind of went off in a different direction. Uh, Tulloch 
gives us a lot of the idea of people as rational and problems that you would have, but Buchanan retained a kind of optimism. And this is what in this book I would want to share. Don't throw out the fact that people choosing in groups can make themselves better off than people choosing as individuals. So the, the problem was public choice often seems to boil down to the idea that um, voters and politicians are just as self-interested as consumers and the CEOs of corporations. That's true, but we also need to think of what Buchanan, and this was just Buchanan, called politics as exchange. That we need a separate, a different kind of institutions to be able to cooperate in groups because bilateral or even corporate, you know, together kind of contracting doesn't work. We need politics. Okay, so you just said a lot there, and we could we might end up spending the rest of the time trying to unpack some of that. I want to I want to go back and have you repeat uh, what your definition of a constitution, small c, meaning a, a set of rules. That's the small c rather than capital C, which might be a particular constitution like a document like the United States Constitution. I, I want to go back to that, and I want to go back to this issue of the will of the people because you said something very subtle there, and it's an issue that comes up now and then on Econ Talk, and, and I have a lot of listeners uh, who get upset when I refuse to accept that political outcomes are the will of the people. So um, – I, I want to dawdle on that for as long as, as we need to. So go back and describe again what a constitution is. I want to argue that a constitution has two main parts. I, I, we, I break it down quite a bit more in the book, but the two main parts are membership, that is becoming a group, a collection of individuals have a kind of contractual uh, relationship where it's an agreement that they'll, they will become a group, they'll choose as a group, and they'll accept the outcomes. Second, they choose a set of rules by which they'll make choices. And there needs to be, in the first part, some provision for entry and exit. So if, if there's no way for me to exit this group, then I'm not really free. And when you think of most of the groups that we talk about going to lunch, I can say, I, I don't like that place. I'm not going. Now, I'm going, or I'm going by myself tanks. or I'm going to go with a different group of friends today. We'll, yep. we'll go next Wednesday to my place. And of course, someone who always does that doesn't find him or herself in very many groups. <laughs> because and, and some people don't value being in groups very much, but most of us do. We actually would prefer to go to lunch with other people instead of going by ourselves. So if for no other reason than company – but there are, there are other reasons why participating in a group matters, and the, the contract part of this is really important. So let me say briefly that what struck me was that without, without the ability to be coerced voluntarily, I'm not free. And we always think this is obvious when it comes to bilateral contracts. If I want someone to come fix my roof, then operating in the background is a machinery, an architecture of enforcement. So we write a contract. I give you $1,000 in advance to buy the shingles. You come a couple of days later. You put the roof on. I owe you another 8000 and I pay you. And if either of us had violated the terms of the contract, there would be coercive forces brought to bear. Some of it would be lawyers, but some of it would be men with guns. Now, it doesn't have to be the state. The thing is, it doesn't have to be the state, but there has to be some recourse to punishment. 
and for so failure I, to comply with the terms of the contract. And if I can't do that, we couldn't sign the contract in the first place. So I actually want that. I want there to be some easy way of enforcing this contract without me personally have to go after you with a baseball bat or you coming after me with a knife. We don't want to have to enforce things that way. We want recourse to some enforcement mechanism. And in equilibrium, meaning that if, if we both behave knowing that that's going to happen, it never happens because we both obey the terms of the contract. Now, it also could be that there are social sanctions. I would, I would know that other people would say, oh, he's a cheater, don't trade with him. But that's, in a way, that's coercion too, because uh, business and benefits are being withheld to me because I violated the terms of this contract. So in, in bilateral exchange, we're sort of used to that. Buchanan's genius insight was that you can extend this to contracts that are not bilateral, and the examples that he give uh, that he gives were, were simple, but it tended to be his experience living in a rural area. Um, mosquito control: if all I do is get rid of all the old tires and mud puddles on my property, there's still a lot of mosquitoes because they can breed otherwise and they fly. So the entire neighborhood has to do this. Each of us can free ride. What we'd like to do is have an agreement, but the agreement is not enough. Hobbes was right when he said that covenants without the sword are but words. Madison was right when he said that these kind of contracts are just parchment barriers. We need some kind of enforcement mechanism just like we need in bilateral exchange. And in fact, that's the only way that we can be free. The paradox is recourse to voluntary terms under which we'll be coerced are the only terms under which we can be truly free because then we can write contracts that can be enforced. The difference is that a constitution, finally answering your question, is an agreement among a group. It's not bilateral. There's not prices. What there is instead is an agreement about performance. And it may be that if we're producing public goods, we have an obligation to pay what looks like a tax, but is actually our contribution to the performance of the contract. And I need to have some way that I can leave. Just like when we're going to lunch, there needs to be some way that I can get out. You can't just say, well, you living here is tacit consent. It's as if you signed the contract. We, need to, we have to have actual consent, not tacit consent which is why I'm not so sure that states and governments satisfy the conditions that I'm laying out. Because that's just a whole different question. But we'll groups, get to, we'll get to that. Right now, we're really so, talking about Buchanan's uh, theory of clubs, right? I, yeah. I join a club, and I submit to the rules of the club, which include probably a membership fee, which I pay voluntarily but coercively. If I, I accept the fact that if I don't pay – enjoy the services that there could be a, a punishment for that. It could be uh, that I'm going to be taken to court. It could be I'll be shunned, like you said. It could be social. But I, in addition to that obvious example where I have a membership fee, there are rules of behavior within the club that I accept when I join the club. To take a silly example, I might have to wear a shirt if I'm in the restaurant of a, of a, of a literal club. And in that case, you could say, well, but that's you can't tell me what to do, and the answer is – your point is that well, you're, you're not telling me what to do. I chose freely yep. to submit myself to the coercion that if I want to eat in the, in the cafe of the club, I have to wear a shirt. Just like the roofer is telling you what to do, you really do have to pay him. 
And you say, I'm going to call the police. You're trying to steal $8,000 from me. No, I fixed your roof and you agreed to pay me. We have a contract. So yes, he's telling you what to do, but it takes place after what Oliver Williamson called the fundamental transformation. So we have a contract. Before the contract, I can choose all sorts of things. After the contract, I'm bound by my agreement. And it's actually important to be able to achieve liberty that I can make those sorts of agreement by which I will be bound. The, the, the thing about clubs is a, it, it's, an, it's an important example. And again, it is Buchanan's work, as you said. The thing about clubs is those are excludable but non-rival which means in technical economic terms, it's possible to withhold if you don't pay, but the, the good itself is non-rival. And an example is swimming pools. So a lot of communities have swimming pools, but you can have a guy at the gate. Are you a member? Are you not a member? But I couldn't have an Olympic-sized swimming pool by myself. We need 100 people or more to have this large facility. So it's not something that the market could provide. What Buchanan says is, well, it, the market can't provide it, perhaps, but you don't need the state because these hybrid organizations, clubs, groups can constitute themselves to provide this. It's not true that things that have the aspect of public goods can only be provided by the state. The mosquito example is interesting because it's not excludable. Yeah, that, I don't, I don't there, there's a problem the... where – Go ahead. Again? Finish up and I'll come back. Go ahead. The, the mosquito example, I don't have a guy at the gate saying, okay, this guy didn't pay, so these mosquitoes can't go onto his property. Or or this, to, forgive yeah. me. This, this guy did do the work. Uh, the mosquitoes can't go onto his property. You didn't pay, so the mosquitoes can go onto yours. Yeah. So the, 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 the difficult problem is how can we constitute ourselves on things that are closer to public goods but in ways that still don't require state provision? I don't understand the Olympic-sized swimming pool. Obviously, I can build an Olympic-sized swimming pool and charge people to come use it. So I don't see that really as uh, – I don't what, – what's the – why is that not a market – why is there a problem with the market providing it? The the group of people – the that could happen. It almost never does because it's risky. Um, I might not get enough members, whereas the group the group is providing an enhancement to their uh, – Buchanan's argument was at least. And in fact, we actually see this happen a lot. Very many neighborhoods have this sort of semi-private uh, swimming pool arrangement. It improves the value of the property of everyone around. I, I, I guess I see this more as an empirical argument. It turns out, given the transactions cost of different contracting arrangements, we just do not see private swimming pools. We do see a lot of semi-public club swimming pools, and it must be, and I'm just making an ex post cosian argument, it must be that that's because that's the lowest transaction cost arrangement. Yeah, I just I just want to um, push a semantic issue here, which is that uh, we just made a distinction between three types of activities, uh, market, state, and then this club but to me, I like to think of the club as a different kind of market solution. And by market because you're solution, from Chicago, that, could, that's the way you Chicago people think. Because it's not. I don't want to just use the word uh, market to describe profit act, profitable activities. I want to allow it to include voluntary activities. Because as I've learned from my friend Dan Klein, I think the distinction between voluntary and coercive is extremely useful. So uh, if I purchase a uh, a uh, pool membership from a private 
profit maximizing act, uh, actor. I don't see that as being much different from a group of us, uh, not a group of us, because literally the group gets going after a while, and then I just choose to join or not. There's a fee. Uh, the group isn't doing this perhaps to make money, uh, but they're doing it to solve a problem, and that's the way I like to think about it. There are different ways to solve problems. Some involve profit. Some are nonprofit, which would be more of a club or a co-op, and some are, are coercive, requiring taxation. Um, so Gene Fama has a great paper that, who won the Nobel Prize recently and who is an avid listener to Econ Talk. So Gene, if you're listening, hello. Um, he has a paper, a couple of papers in 1983 about the choice of institutional form as a way of making firms better able to provide these kinds of services. And I think in that sense, it's fair to say it's a market. Maybe we shouldn't get hung up on this, but the the, the series of papers that Fama wrote also said that you want to take this out of the for-profit zone just because people are more, more willing to make donations for whatever reason when they, they have a, a, a membership stake rather than an equity stake. And well, what you're really uh, doing uh, there, what you're really doing there is your price discriminating, right? You're allowing, what you really want to do in some of these situations is charge a really high fee to some people who either because they value it a lot or they just like the whole enterprise. And that's awkward to post those. So what they do instead is they they post a low, relatively low fee to get a lot of members. And this religious institutions do this all the time. And then they collect, and schools do it uh, that are privately run. They collect larger amounts from certain people using social pressure, using uh, rewards, using the desire for people to be lovely. And they're able to then uh, get different amounts from different people the way they would not normally in a poor profit situation. Yeah, well, I, I think you have now clarified that this is, I, mean, I shouldn't say only a semantic distinction because definitions are important. I think there's a public-private difference. You might say a voluntary, coercive, or state market difference. We agree it's it's private, and the, the private voluntary yeah. part is what's interesting. Yeah, I like that. Agreed. So the, that we, we, we might agree on that. Let's take one more example that you use in the book uh, to help clarify this, which is uh, the classic, classical uh, example of um, Ulysses and the Sirens. So talk about that as an example of coercion and freedom. Set that, well, set that story up. Part of the – it didn't occur to me for a long time, but this is actually an illustration of Oliver Williamson's fundamental transformation. There is – Two, I'm, I prefer the Greek Odysseus. Uh, Ulysses is a, a, a later Roman bastardization of it, so I'm going to go with on the Odyssey. Um, Odysseus knew that in the future he was going to want to do something other than what he wants himself to do now. So Odysseus one is trying to come up with a set of rules, knowing that. He himself, Odysseus too, is going to try to break those rules. Now, the particular story, and this is from a Circe was was warning the the men uh, that were sailing on Odysseus's ship. You're going to go by the island of the Sirens, and these are beautiful women, and they sing a song that's so seductive you'll lose your senses, you'll swim, you'll jump overboard, your ship will be dashed on the rocks, and all the rocks around the islands of the Sirens are covered with the bones and wreckage of uh, sailors and ships that were unable to resist this very seductive song. So your sailors block up their ears with wax and cotton so that they won't be able to hear. But you Odysseus's suggestion, right? 
Yes. Not, yeah, not so Cersei. Cersei. Well, but Cersei says this is what you need to do. Okay. And then, then yes, Odysseus does it. But but the the reason I'm setting it up this way is that let's remember Odysseus is the one giving orders. Now that's a perfectly plausible orders. Okay, you guys, we're going to a dangerous place. Block up your ears with wax and cotton. Fair enough. Okay, we'll do that. But then he gives them a weird order. Second, yeah. disobey my orders. I order you to disobey my orders. Wait, what? You're the captain. If we disobey your orders, this will be mutiny. Nope, I mean it. You must disobey my orders because I know that future Odysseus will be unable to resist this. So this is before and after the contract. I know that before, I want everybody to pay taxes. I also know that afterwards, I might want to cheat if there's not some arrangement for making sure that I and everyone else also pays their taxes. So the, the interesting thing is this looks coercive. Suppose you were on another ship. So what, what, what Cersei said was bid your men when you, when you start telling them to set you free to bind you ever more tightly. So when you order them to untie you, tell them, if anything, tie you more tightly because you'll be struggling to escape. Yeah, you left out the part that, you, that Odysseus, Odysseus himself, uh, using the prerogative of the captain, uh, left the wax out of his ears because yeah. he wanted to hear the song, but then yeah. instructed his men to lash him to the mast so yeah. that he would not be free to steer the boat toward the rocks um, because of the seductiveness of the singing. So, yeah. and, and, and he won't jump overboard. Correct. So, so uh, he, he's telling them in advance, tie me up, and if I struggle, make sure that the ropes hold tight and don't listen to my yeah. orders to untie me, which I will probably Disobey get. Disobey my orders. Right. Uh, which, by the way, reminds me of uh, one of my favorite scenes in Young Frankenstein when uh, Gene Wilder says, no matter how much I beg, don't open that door. And uh, <laughs> uh, when the moment comes, of course, he desperately is begging and pleading and yeah. uh, Terry Gar is filing her nails and um, Igor is um, whistling or something. And they ignore him because they told him to. Told him to. Yeah. Uh, yes. but that's, he ordered them to. That's uh, Frederick Frankenstein 2.0 and it's too yeah. bad because 1.0 said don't don't open the door. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that that's the symbol that's on the – if you look at the cover of the journal that Buchanan started, the, the uh, Constitutional Political Economy, there is Odysseus bound to the mast. So the question is, can we come up with a set of rules that will bind us after we may decide we don't want to follow them anymore, maybe because we disagree with the outcome. Because if we can't, we won't really be free. Odysseus would not have been free. They would have had to take a different route if he couldn't have done this. Or he would have had to put wax and cotton in his own ears. He wouldn't have had the option, which he wanted, was to hear the song and not die. So let's now get to um, the will of the people. Your suggestion, and I'm going back to your earlier comment uh, that, that started this conversation, piece of the conversation off. Basically, you're arguing if I'm in a group, and I'm going to emphasize this because I want to come back to this point in a second. If if uh, I voluntarily accept membership in the group, this could be a contract and a bilateral exchange, but we're talking about politics, so it's not bilateral typically. It's a group of people. We constitute the group. I choose a set of rules – we, excuse me, choose a set of rules, and um, then even if I don't like the outcome, of which some of the people by def almost by definition will not, uh, I abide by the rules, by the outcome, certainly, 
but you were also suggesting it has some uh, sense of capturing our will. And I'm going to fight you on that for a little bit. So try to make the case. Again, it's the fundamental transformation. I start out as an individual. Now, if we're talking about states, I really don't. I would have to be a member of some group because I can't possibly survive on my own. And so we usually tell this mythology about tacit consent when it's a state that I, if I live within a state that I'm agreeing to its rules. And David Hume compared that to it, I'm, I'm drugged and taken aboard a ship and then I wake up the next morning and we're a hundred miles out at sea and you say, well, you don't have to stay on the ship. You can jump overboard and be devoured by creatures of the sea. Uh, that's not really consent that, you know, I was taken aboard without my consent. What I want to argue is I don't have to board this ship. I can board other ships or I can survive on my own. It's my choice to say, looking at these rules, I'm going to accept these outcomes. And that's the agreement that I sign. Now, I admit that that's a pretty difficult condition to meet, and many of the, of the groups that we might think of as being coercive, that condition might not be met. But my point is there's an existence proof. The will is to say, I'm going to, I, I think that I'm going to be better off being a member of this group, and one of the things I would want to know is what are the exit provisions? What do I have to do to get out? So the sort of example that we might worry about is a homeowners association in a, uh, a neighborhood. And we start out, we have a set of rules for the homeowners association. It happens where I live. There are rules with you, you, you can't plant a tree or cut down a tree. You can't paint your house without permission from the homeowners association. But I knew that coming in, and that was the agreement that I accepted when I purchased the house, maybe because I don't want other people to have that right either. So it's a solution to what might be an externalities problem. We don't want people doing bizarre things to their houses and hurting property values, but it means that I'm bound by that also. Now the Neighborhood Association changes the rules and says, we're going to have much more restrictive uh, decisions. And you can't change the color of your curtains. We can see those through the, the window, and you can't change the color of your curtains without our permission. In the first case, the will of the group was actually met by agreeing to the rules. In the second case, it's not so clear because we're changing the rules in the middle. So what I want to say, and this, is just, this isn't me, this is Buchanan's claim, the consent is not to outcomes. The consent, the will, the collective will is to the Constitution. And oftentimes, if you, try, if you change the rules, that's coercion that wasn't consented to. So that distinction may seem too subtle, but it means that we, we, we might be able to get consent, and that's the, the will of the group, the will of the individuals who make up the group, can be embodied in the Constitution. But it but, seems – not in the rules when we change the rules. So it seems to me there's two things that, that are left off of the earlier two-part uh, description of a small C constitution. So I think – correct me if I got it wrong. You said issue number one is uh, who's in the group and issue number two is uh, how do we decide? What are the rules by which we make group decisions, correct? Yes. So I would say there are two more things that have to be made clear. One is – how do, what are the rules for changing the rules? And yeah. in the United States, we have a 
We have two ways to do that. We have the amendment process to the Constitution, and then we have the opportunity to call a constitutional convention, which uh, has not been invoked, but um, it could be. So well, it, 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 it did happen once, once. and it, it, it turned out pretty <laughs> – they changed a lot, so we may not want to do that. Right, so we did that once, but we haven't done it since. And, no. Um, so, so who's in the group? What are the rules for making decisions? What are the rules for changing the rules? And I'm going to well, but that's that's that, that's part that's part of two. The, the reason I, I divided it is actually yeah. five. But if, if you divide it into two, the rules have to include rules for changing the rules. But you're you're still right. That's very important. And then the fourth thing I would add, which to me is uh, central, and if we look at the evolution of the political process in the United States, to me to be is the central thing. The central the, the central thing that we haven't talked about yet is. Uh, what is allowed – and I understand this is really part of the rules, but I'm just breaking it out. What is allowed to be decided on is everything up for grabs. Uh, so because that's obviously there, – there's two points to be made there. One is that's going to affect my willingness to join the group. And secondly, how much leeway is there in the actual outcomes relative to the rules? Because we know the rules can't specify all situations. So there's some dimension of discretion on the part of the officers, politicians, whatever it is, about what the rules actually are. Because we don't want to write a set of rules that cover every conceivable situation. That would be uh, impossible because of the knowledge problem, information, it, transaction costs. It'd be expensive to try and we'd fail. So by definition, we so if the rule says that the Homeowners Association has the right – to uh, decide uh, aesthetics, physical attractiveness, which means you have to – that would allow, say, the cutting of the lawn requirement or painting appealing paint, et cetera. But does it allow curtains? Um, at the time, everybody said, of course not when they created the group. Yeah. But, but a later head of the homeowners association who's got this thing for curtains suddenly decides that's part of the aesthetics and there's a case to be made. So there's this – to me, there's a big range of discretion uncertainty that possibly when the group is first constituted, it's pretty unanimous. There's a real consensus over what falls within the rules, but there's some slippage over time. And I see that when I look at the U.S. Constitution, and I, of course, totally agree with you um, – as every I think listener will will imagine, that I don't see the U.S. political system as a consensual act on my part. I'm a, a human there. Um, the Constitution seems to have drifted. What would have been allowed in 1850 isn't allowed, or is allowed in 1950. And as a result, the authority of the state has been expanded. It includes my what I drink, what I do in my bedroom, my kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those extensions or changes seem to me to be um, the challenge that any of this um, noble uh, overarching story has to do with reality is that uh, it sounds good about we agree to the rules, but the rules don't always um, – it's not clear what the rules apply to. There's two responses that I have, and I'll try to be brief. First, many of the issues that you're talking about apply equally well to any kind of complex overtime contract between two individuals. So the holdup problem, the kind of uh, Klein, Crawford, and Alchian, Alchian and Demsets problems, 
you know, for theory of the firm, we can't write a complete contract there either. And so we need some way of adjudicating disputes. Maybe we can try to write it into the contract, but it's too hard to specify everything. So if it's a, if it's a long-term contract, one of the things that you might see is Coase theorem sort of results where it might be easier for me to acquire my supplier rather than sub, be subject to holdup problems. And so there's a question about the optimal size of the group, even in private bilateral contracts. So the, that, that's always a problem of, of having slippage if it's a long-term rather than one-off contract. That doesn't mean that it's easily solved, but it's not unique to choosing in groups. That's correct. Second, your example elides over into say, well, what about the state? And neither Buchanan nor I would want to argue that this is a way of justifying the state. I don't think you can. What I, what I do want to say is there are things that are private and voluntary, but don't rely primarily on what, like, what look like market institutions, but use some sort of collective choice, voting, or other way of aggregating the views of the people who are members that nonetheless can serve the interests of the members in the group. And people will find themselves better off signing these sorts of contracts. Explain. So if anything, well, if, 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 if anything, the, the fact that groups of us, and this is the, in a way, the Lewis and Clark example uh, that, that is in the book, groups may use not bidding, but some sort of voting mechanism for trying to get information about what they should do because they're not sure. Individuals have views on this, but we have to choose as a group. And so we use institutions. And there's all kinds of different ways of voting. It doesn't have to be majority rule, but they use some mechanism for voting, a non-market way of choosing, which is a discovery process. Markets use prices as a discovery process for trying to decide the relative value of resources. Politics uses voting as a discovery process to, to illuminate the relative value of different alternatives, and no individual in the group may know which, which one the group thinks is the right one to do. Now, does it work perfectly? No. But in many settings, it may be the only choice that we have. So let's turn to voting, which um – uh, and, and the example you, you start with in the book is really a beautiful one. Um, it's a, a little bit uh, complicated, but the gist of it is is that uh, Lewis and Clark and uh, their expedition, which starts off as being uh, all men, but they later add uh, Sacagawea, uh, a, a, a woman, but it's mostly men. Uh, this group uh, ends up at the Pacific Ocean, at the, near the boundary of uh, current-day Washington State and Oregon State, and it's unbelievably miserable. And it's not clear they're going to make it back alive. Um, they have weather threats. They have um, Indian threats. They have a problem that they might not have enough food. So it's a really important decision to decide what to do now that they've reached the ocean. Should they? And their three choices are, if I have this correct, head north head south or head inland. Is that correct? Yes. And so the, what's fascinating to me, and I, and I read Undaunted Courage. It's one of, I listened to it on tape. It's one of the best, uh, most engrossing things I've ever listened to, or I'll call it read. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible book um, and, and is worth by, reading. By Stephen, by Stephen Ambrose yeah. for, the, for listeners. And worth reading even if um, 
just for the just for the ending, just um, for the post expedition ending, an unbelievable story. Um, so throughout the expedition, Lewis and Clark are they're the boss. <laughs> There's two of them. They're a group, the two of them. But the other, how many how many men start off on the trip? Is it thirty nine or something? Forty, including hangers on forty five. Okay, so throughout the trip, they've been. It's a it's not a it's not a democracy. Uh, as you point out, they whip people they, who don't obey decisions. Um, well, it's a, it's a constituted group that is not a democracy because it's a military hierarchy. They, the, the Lewis and Clark are captains, and the others, the highest rank is sergeant. And there's no question what happens when an enlisted man disobeys an officer in what, in effect, is wartime in hostile territory. And so they come to this point, and they do something surprising, you point out. So describe what they do. Well, one bit of background, my co-author on a couple of earlier books was Melvin Hinnick, and he and I were going to do a new edition of this book. It would have been very different. He called me on a Sunday and said, I think Lewis and Clark actually voted, and they had more than two alternatives, which for technical reasons, people who study social choice, that's potentially interesting. You should go look this up. And so I said I would, and we would talk later in the week, but the next morning, Mel fell down the stairs at his house, broke his neck, and died. Didn't survive the fall. His wife found him at the bottom of the stairs. That was the last conversation I ever had with Mel. And I wrote a very different book. I didn't write anything for a while. I kind of shut down. Um, but the, that example was something that Mel pointed me to. And what's interesting about it is that it was a choice that had – an interesting structure because there's three alternatives with no majority in favor of any of them. But what's more interesting is what you've already alluded to. This was a military group. Lewis and Clark in the past had been the only people in the entire expedition that thought what turned out to be the South Fork of the Missouri River was in fact the Missouri River. Uh, all the men wanted to go north. Only Lewis and Clark said, no, nope, no, nope, we're going to take this south when it looks like the Missouri to us. That's the one that's going to lead us to the Shoshone. And the men said, okay, you guys are the boss, because they were. Now, it may have helped that Lewis and Clark were correct, and it was, in fact, the, the, right, the correct fork of the Missouri. So it, it, it was not true that Lewis and Clark were in any way afraid of exercising their obligation to make choices and be responsible for them. They were perfectly happy to be in charge. Not one qualm in the world. Nonetheless, in this case, they voted. So I think the first thing, they, they, they asked for a vote. So I think the first thing that's interesting about this is Lewis and Clark themselves must not have had very strong views. They weren't sure which one was the right thing to do. They wanted information, and they wanted to have, I think, the participants feel like they'd had some stake in the outcome. And those two are the reason that I think we often conduct votes. In groups, we might have informal, things that are not formally required by the rules, we still might ask everybody what they think. Now, maybe we count votes, or maybe it's just a deliberative process where everybody expresses their views, but there's some, something fundamentally human about those two ideas. Let's see what everybody thinks so that we can get information. Maybe we're wrong. And second, we get a, a sort of affirmation that this is what we want to do with all of the problems of 
attributing will to a group because a group can't have a will. Only individuals can have will. But this is what we as a group are deciding to do. And the chance to express it publicly like that, there's something very human. I describe in the book what the scene must have been like. Uh, the, the, it's, it's 45 degrees. It's raining. It's been raining for six days. They're not in a hotel. They're in tents. <laughs> so that, you know, they, they've said it's they whipping. Gore, they don't have any Gore-Tex either. They're, they, this is bad. Their clothes are rotting. They have to get this right. And so each of them in turn says, this is what I think. And then uh, the, a decision was made. They went to Fort Clotsop, and now you know. Now you're back to the the story that Ambrose tells so well. But the, in this this one brief choice, they const they they reconstituted themselves as a different kind of group, not a democracy exactly, but as a group where each person's opinion counted the same and tried to say, well, what should we do? Now I just want to make one. Um uh, cynical remark about voting, and and then we'll go on and talk a little bit more about Lewis and Clark. But um, of course, we don't know. I don't think we know. You correct me if I'm wrong. It's possible that Lewis and Clark had in, had informally canvassed the group, and they knew what the vote would be. And this happens in organizations all the time. It's true that the vote decides things, but the people in charge there are people in charge of when to vote, and so that decision of when to vote and knowing the vote in advance can effectively give the illusion of a group decision when, in fact, it was really uh, the, the decision makers at the top who, if they hadn't liked the way the vote was looking, they just would have said, no, there's no vote. We're going we're going to Fort Clatsop anyway. Um, it's also possible they could have, after the vote came out for Fort Clatsop, they could have said, you know, we still don't agree with you. So there's a certain uh, romance about this that's, you know, it's very t- moving, actually, because of the situation that, that they were in. The other point I want to make, though, is that I think the information uh, provision of, of, of voting is is overrated. Um, in in a you know, James Surowiecki in a wonderful book called The Wisdom of Crowds talked about the different ways that knowledge gets aggregated through through various uh, surveys, voting, etc. And I I'm skeptical about a lot of that. Uh, often in voting. Uh, the fact that people have no uh, limited incentive to vote wisely seems to me very uh, destructive of providing and producing information. In this particular case, though, the fact that it was probably life or death uh, probably did focus – concentrate the mind wonderfully, to quote uh, Samuel Johnson. And um, so maybe they paid a little more attention to what they voted on and maybe they, they spent a lot of energy arguing um, about with each other to try to help produce that information about what was the best choice. But I'm, um, I'm a little bit skeptical of voting when, when there's, uh, uh, there's not that much incentive to be informed. Sure. The problem is compared to what? And the first, the first the impulse that you mentioned, uh, it, voting can certainly be manipulated, and that's what most of the rest of the book is about. Yeah, well, fact, we're going to talk about saying, that. <laughs> but the, what's interesting is in spite of that, how often do we use it? Is our faith in voting or some kind of you know, expression of preferences misplaced? And a lot of times, I don't know what else you would do. Five of us want to go to lunch. Somebody says, where do we want to go? Well, they don't really mean that. What they mean is, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? And it, it may turn out we all have the same view. We probably don't. And so the first thing we're doing is collecting information about what people want. 
And that's not voting exactly. That clearly provides information. Then, though, we have to say, all right, given that, what are we going to do? Problem with voting is it collapses the information gathering and the authoritative result into one. And often it's in groups that are so large, the incentives to actually get information about the outcomes is limited. And I'm, I may just say this is my opinion in hopes that I'll get uh, – well, that people will think me lovely because I'm saying something yeah. that sounds charitable knowing that my vote can't possibly influence the outcome. And so the uh, Jeff Brennan and Lauren Lomaski have a great book, Democracy and Decision, where they say in groups that are larger than just very small ones, there's no reason to expect the votes that people the, – the views that people express to have anything to do with what they would actually pick. And but in, in this group, I think it, the, the, in, for Lewis and Clark, it, it was striking that they had chosen to have a vote. And I think the thing that's important to remember about Lewis and Clark is that it turns out that Fort Clatsop, the, the choice they actually made, was really only tied with the next best choice, which was to go north. So there was no big dispositive outcome. And I, you know, Stephen Ambrose, in his account of this, I wouldn't say that he gets it wrong, but he has the wrong emphasis. And everybody has the wrong emphasis. They over-romanticize this. So the sort of trick about using this example is, yes, you know, it's great that they had this vote, but it didn't settle anything. Probably what Lewis and Clark thought was, well, darn, now we have to decide because there's no majority in favor of anything. And according to one of the accounts, depending on how you count the votes, it's really either a tie or very close to a tie. There's, there's no majority. What, what I thought was cool was that there were three alternatives. Why? Nobody said there's going to be three alternatives. It was because there were actually people advocating for each of these three. And so they narrowed it down to that because those were the three camps or factions. Yeah, they, so could have, it was a they, way, could, they could have made it four. They could have said camp on the beach yeah. and keep a 24-hour guard to see if a ship shows up. There, there, there could yeah. have been many no, – nobody, But nobody was advocating for that. So the, there, there's an endogeneity to this decision structure that I, I just think is fascinating, that a group of people struggling with a difficult problem tried this. And you can easily imagine if they had chosen a different way of approaching it, they would have gotten a different outcome. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a sec. I just want to emphasize the exit part again. In this particular case, uh, it's probably as as clear as possibly can be that if you disagreed with the choice, and you said, I don't like – I voted – I didn't vote for Fort Clatsop. I voted for heading inland for the winner uh, because I thought game would be more plentiful there. A person who then said, so, so I'm going off on my own. <laughs> it's probably going to – it's like Hume on the boat. He's probably going to – not going to make it. Nope. So the exit opportunities here are very limited, and it's possible, by the way – I don't think you wrote about this, but it's possible that Lewis and Clark, not only are the – would you die if, if one of the – would one of the people die if they went off on their own, but maybe many of the group would die if some of them went off on their own. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could have had a subgroup say eight people or 12, 10 or 12 in some of the votes. Yeah, well, we didn't like four class. If we're going off on our own – uh, and the answer was, well, then we're all going to die because we need this. Yep. There's economies of scale in, in hunting and uh, provisioning, et cetera. Uh, and well, the defense, you, you have to be a large enough group that oh, if you come upon a too. group of – Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the other point, going back to the lunch, um, I, I think it's really important to, to think of – and for me, this is why I often just think about what belongs in the political sphere and what belongs in the private sphere. You don't want too much stuff in the public political sphere – that that when it's possible to choose on your own, 
and and not be harmed, right? So so if I choose, um, uh, for example, to to be a, a vegetarian inside my home, uh, and the homeowners association says we just don't like the idea that there are people who are vegetarians here, um, that's going to make it. Even though no one else can see it, you know, except maybe when I'm opening my car to take out the groceries or vice versa. We won't have any meat eaters here. I can understand why people might join together who, who want to eat a certain way. But pro- those are private choices fundamentally. Those are private choices. And the more we and make – private, in, you mean individual? Yes. Because it, it could be – the homeowner association is a private association, but it's still a group. So you mean an individual choice. What I really want to say is a, a homeowner's association that wants to – dictate everything I eat is no longer what we would think of as a homeowner, homeowners association. It's a, um, it's a, what you call it, not a, um, what do you call a, uh, a group of people who live on their own and have really strict rules. Uh, not a cult, but it's close to a cult. What's the, what's, <laughs> right, yeah, no, yeah. what's the word I'm looking, there's a word for it when, uh, when a group of people go off and live on their own under very strict rules, right? As a group. It'll come to me later, maybe. But but we all. Understand. I, I think it's a, I think it's a sociology department. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's not right. No, that's never a mind. Shot. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say. Uh, I'm thinking of a commune. That's the word I'm thinking. Yeah. of. A commune says basically, I want to be. I choose to be in a group where an enormous range of my behavior is dictated. It might include how what? I raise my kids. And Russ, what are you doing here? What. That, that let's say you and we're, we're 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 platting out a new neighborhood. We've paid to have the roads built, and we're developers. But we want people to keep kosher, or we want people to be vegans. So in the in the initial agreement to sign up, it says only vegans can buy these houses. And you agree if you live in this house to be a vegan. Isn't it different if? I'm looking around at different neighborhoods and I see this one and I say, oh, that's right. I'd like to be a member of that kind of community because that's a group of people joining into a group, constituting themselves voluntarily with full knowledge. That's different, full stop, from the homeowners association is taken over by a majority of vegans and adds this now no, to I their totally constitution. Agree. And, and, and I'm, maybe I'm going down a bad path here. What I really want to say is in the political public solution – the more things we put into the public sphere, which are by definition, as you say, not voluntary, right? I, I'm not yeah. really voluntarily joining the, the 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 group called the United States, um, yeah. born into it. In that world, I think I'm very eager to limit the things we put into the political process to limit it to those things that are not what I would call easily solved by private choices. That is – what what I do on a Wednesday morning, uh, what time I wake up, et cetera, et cetera, what I eat for lunch. And I think to the extent that we that that certain groups push toward publicize making public those decisions, we get discord. And yep. and, and the the example I want to use with lunch is, yeah, well if the if the group always goes to the same place for lunch and there are groups that do that they have a regular lunch meeting that tends to attract people who want to do that and that's great there's nothing wrong with that it's as we said before it's not coercive and some people might drop out of the group after a while because they're sick of going to the same chinese restaurant but yeah, so that at, at, at mercatus people say no tyler i don't want to go to malatang again <laughs> and there's back and forth and there's discussion and negotiation and consensus comes about again and some people move in and out of the group but that's that's a really different 
situation than the political process of a national government where you if you dictate things that don't need to be dictated in other words life or death probably is a good thing that we coerce ourselves it's probably a good thing that there's a uh, a defense budget. It may be bigger than I'd like. It may do things I don't like with it. But I concede that that there's a real publicness to defense and maybe even to mosquito abatement. But then once you start moving into other things, it's uh, – to me, all the logic falls apart. And that I, – I do want to keep defending Buchanan. He, what Buchanan is worried about is a monolithic leviathan because he thought once you have a state – it will just eat all of the other choices. It will put pull all of them inside like a sort of great vortex of all of the choices will become public because that's the uh, that's the way that states work. That's the logic is is to expand, which is why he wanted private groups. So a private group is one that can say we want to we want to have a commune, and you can join if you want. Maybe they would require that there's some sort of exit provision. But if people sign up and there is no exit provision, maybe that's on them. Uh, we, maybe we can have a legal system that allows them to leave under some circumstances for breach of contract. But there's the, the, allow any sort of private group that you want as a group, the choosing as a group, not, not contracting through markets. But that's actually the way that we can limit the size of the state and say, if you want to do that, form your own group. Don't force everyone to have it because that's coercive. And that comes back to a, a, an argument we're not going to get into, but about what's the correct size of the body yeah. politic and the advantages of um, of a state system or pushing things down to the local level rather than having them be imposed across the all all uh, districts. And um, yeah. there are a lot of advantages to there's trial and error advantages to having lots of districts and, and uh, less national political solutions for sure. And um, so Buchanan was a federalist for that reason, but since we're not going to get to it, let me just put in a plug for Vincent Ostrom and polycentrism where you have this reflective, adaptive set of changes where you recognize that the, the size of the group should correspond with the size of the externality or public good that you're trying to, to internalize. That's and what so I wanted to say. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> My long rambling comment of a minute ago. Say that again, and and for the listeners who don't know what you mean by internalized, because we had a um, in the Alex Tabarrok episode, he talked about how a private developer can internalize externalities. So that's a phrase that slips easily off our lips. So go back and explain uh, the the Vincent Ostrom example. Well, what what Ostrom argued for was what he called polycentricity. And he thought that states and public organizations are really bad at matching the size of a decision body to the size of the problem that they're trying to deal with. And so the problem might be mosquito abatement, which is relatively local, or the problem might be national defense, which is by definition going to have to be pretty, pretty national. large. Pretty national. <laughs> and so the police protection, maybe that's larger fire protection is relatively local. Maybe you can handle that with small volunteer fire departments. Um, what he, what Ostrom was preaching was a sort of Hayekian ignorance. I'm not sure of what the right scope of this should be. So let's try to match the size of the group that decides with the size, and I'm using air quotes, the size of the problem. And by size, I mean 
what's the extent of it? If it's, is it a neighborhood? We'll let the neighborhood work on it. Why would the state dictate to neighborhoods that this is a neighborhood problem? Let's let them choose. So we're not sure uh, about this matchup. And by, by, by internalize, all we mean is a way of solving the problem that the group would be satisfied with. And so we're back to the Buchanan and Tullock distinction, um, which uh, Ostrom, Vincent Ostrom took and, and, and ran with. If the group is larger, the decision group is larger than the size of the problem, you're going to impose unnecessarily a uniformity of choice when you could have diversity of choice. This neighborhood wants to do this. This neighborhood wants to do this. Why have a one-size-fits-all solution when the different groups in choosing all of them could be better off because they're, they, they don't have to accept a single outcome, which is what states do. That's really all states can do is say, here's what we think, and that's just not true. We don't think that. And just as you – we don't go out to have lunch with 2,000 people every day. There's some optimal size of the group with an understanding that not every day you might be happy, but most of the days you would be, and you're willing to, sub, you're willing to enjoy the company of the group. Really yeah. to go to a place you don't love because the company of the group is is special enough to you. It's, it's also hard to talk if there's twenty of us. That so we, if if there is twenty, we'll probably break into two, and we just do that naturally. We figure this out, and so Vincent Ostrom is hard to read, but the the insight of polycentricity is is brilliant because it 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 means that we're not sure, and we may have to adjust it over time. So you know, now that we didn't talk about it, we talked about it. Yeah, and I'm going to just add that. When you just said in passing, maybe fire departments could be voluntary, and I'm sure some listeners said, well, that's a wacky utopian idea. But, of course, in many times throughout the world, uh, private fire – voluntary fire departments have been effective. We, I'll put up an essay uh, from uh, the Library of Economics and Liberty. I think it's by Fred McChesney on this. Um, I hope I have that right. Um, well, we've gone for about an hour, Mike. Uh, we're about a chapter into your book. Um, <laughs> what, what I would like to do is uh, very quickly uh, lay out, and by quickly I mean in a minute or two, some of the issues that arise. We've just gotten to the – some might say the interesting part, which is voting and the actual – what are the con consequences of particular rules? Um, and you raised a, a tantalizing example of when there's three things to choose from, things get surprisingly complicated – so just very quickly lay out some of the issues that arise with voting, and then maybe we can have another, another episode of Econ Talk to talk about uh, how voting works and doesn't work. The difficult thing about specifying rules to decide how we're going to decide is one thing we have to do is decide how to change the rules, as you already said. But the problem with deciding how to change the rules is that – People will want – they'll select rules based on what they think the outcomes will be. And so if we disagree about outcomes, we'll, dis we'll disagree about rules, and that means it may be difficult for us to make a decision that's actually defensible. The difficulty with using majority rule or what many people would call democracy – actually to decide things and particularly to attach moral force to it. And I see this all the time. People say, well, that's what the majority wants. Who cares? Why would you expect rectitude from the multitude? Why would you expect one person who you think selfish and I can't trust, if you put them together into a mob, why would I say, okay, that I trust? If it's a mob, it's a bunch of people, I trust them. 
But, but the thing is, there's, there's an additional technical difficulty that I don't know why isn't taught in high school. And that's what often is called Condorcet's paradox, although in the book we document the fact that it, it dates to the 11th century. Um, it, interestingly, it, it's a, a very old result. And the, the simple version is that if there's three choices, three choosers, and disagreement, democracy may be radically indeterminate. So if there's three choices, three choosers, and disagreement, democracy may be radically indeterminate in the sense that the sequence, the rules, all of those things have more to say in determining the outcome than the preferences that we think we're trying to aggregate. The problem, the real problem is that that will not be apparent to the participants. So it unless, looks unless like – Unless they read your book. But it, and then they should they should all buy they should absolutely <laughs> all buy the book. I mean, I I actually I I've made presentations to groups of visiting scholars from India, China, and they hear this and say this can't be true. No one ever told us this before. Well, I it, it doesn't follow. I'm trying to tell you now. So <laughs> what that means is this this is this is actually terrifying. Democracy is radically indeterminate. The outcome can be manipulated, but that manipulation will not be apparent to people unless they have seen this technical result, which means that you sort of, you can have shamans, people who know the rules, be in charge in ways that are tantamount to dictatorship. So the, the, we should be very skeptical about claims that this is what the people want. I think ontologically, that is in terms of existence, the idea of the will of the people is a genie or will of the wisp that we shouldn't really believe in. But in, in, for technical reasons, that notion of outcomes being the will of the people, we should be very skeptical about. So rather than postpone this to another episode, now that you've launched in, into this so eloquently, uh, why don't you talk about – what do you mean indeterminate? You have a vote, you get an outcome. What's the big deal? The way that you just said it is correct, and if that's all people would interpret it as, then I would agree. So here's what I would say. Individuals have wills. Now, they may be confused. You know, There's behavioral economics that would say maybe my preferences can be manipulated, but I have objectives. People act purposively. If I have better information, I'll make better choices. So I know what it means to say that an individual has a will. Maybe I have competing wills, but economics is about trade-offs. So I want to lose weight and I want to eat donuts. I'll work that out somehow. But why would you expect that a group has a will? And James Buchanan, in his famous uh, review of Kenneth Arrow's first book on social choice in 1954 in the journal Political Economy, has just a, a, an, a remarkable insight. Of course, you would expect democracy to be indeterminate if people disagree. How could you possibly come up with a consensus out of disagreement? It would be magic. And unless you believe in magic, you shouldn't expect that. So individuals have wills, groups have choices, and choices depend on decision rules. And that's why Buchanan wrote about choosing how to choose. The calculus of consent was mostly how should we pick rules knowing that rules really, really matter. So what I mean by indeterminate is given a set of preferences, you have a, a group of people, they disagree, but they want to choose as a group, maybe because it's like Lewis and Clark, they know that they can't split up. They actually have to stick together. We're just going to have one choice here. But we disagree. What rule should we pick? <clears throat> it turns, turns out that different rules may imply different outcomes. And when you say that, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But of course it is. The same preferences with different rules give you different outcomes. 
Well, if that's true, the choice of rules is tantamount to dictatorship. Whoever can make the rules that they want can get the outcome that they want. So what I mean by people, indeterminate – And if people don't know that, they're very vulnerable. Well, they're, and you know, the people who make rules, of course, would always say – <laughs> we're going to we're going to do what you people want, and and here's the way that we're going to decide that. So the the, the difficulty when I say democracy is indeterminate, we tend to think of voting procedures as being epistemology, that is knowledge. We know that the voters want something, and we're just going to use voting procedures to try to figure out what that is. That on its face sounds like it makes sense. It just turns out not to be true. Often a majority is opposed to every alternative. A majority is opposed to every alternative, which means that we're basically playing rock, paper, scissors. So if you have three alternatives, there's three different majorities. If you say democracy is doing what the people want, well, do you want the majority that thinks A is better than B, the majority that thinks B is better than C, or the majority that thinks C is better than A? Because you can't have all of them. You're going to have to violate the will of one of those majorities. So there's, there are internal multiple majorities. And what I think is remarkable is you read the Federalist Papers, you read Madison. They had a, a sort of inchoate understanding and intuition about this. So if you look at the design principles of most constitutions, this, they recognize that this is a problem that they have to solve. The people who didn't recognize this problem, and we talk about it in the book quite a bit, was the French. And the the period after the French Revolution, 1792 to 1794, you actually see the indeterminacy of democracy at work with the, all the chaos and killing that that would imply. So it's literally indeterminate in the sense that they couldn't make a decision and stick to it, and the result was revolution and dictatorship in the form of Napoleon. So this example of, of – and this arises typically with, with three uh, or more choices – one way to to I'm sure some listeners are going, what are you talking about? One way to see it is it it matters the order in which you vote. So if you vote A against B and then the winner of that goes against C, you might get a very different outcome if you voted A against C and the winner goes against B. And uh, there's some nice examples in the book um, of, of how that can happen. But what that means is – you know, when you said there are different rules lead to different outcomes, well, I mean, different rules. Sure, voting is going to be different than the strongest person gets to decide, say, or the tallest person or the the um, the richest person. This is just these are just standard majority voting procedures that that really have very unattractive aspects when there's more than two things to choose from. I often, if I talk to a like go to a retirement home or something, I'll just say, let's try this voting rule, and people say, all right, that makes sense. Assuming that it's neutral, but it's not. So th these are this is not yeah tri trial by strength or a, a five mile race. These are different, apparently equally plausible voting rules. The differences should be innocuous, but they're actually determinate. So if if the if the choice of rules is determinate, the choice of preferences can't be. Which is why I say democracy is indeterminate. We're looking for we want to go from what the people want to what the government does. But what the people want is not determinate because it depends on the rules. Which allows, uh, say, a chair of a meeting who decides what the order of the vote is, which seems totally innocuous, to actually control what the outcome is uh, if the chair knows or, enough. 
and, and the, the alternative that some people will say when I make that argument, because that seems bad, if the chair <laughs> can use what looks like democracy to pick the outcome, that's not really democracy. But they say, oh, wait, but people can vote strategically. Wait! What you're saying is that the voters can lie about what they want and thwart the will of the chair. That can't possibly be what you mean by democracy. Voters lie in order to prevent being manipulated by a dictator. That just sounds like dictatorship to me. And, of course, political institutions in most situations uh, – in fact, almost every situation, uh, it's never as simple as, well, we'll just have a vote and we'll abide by the vote. You know, Occasionally in life uh, – you know, and I gave the example, Lewis and Clark, that, that they could have changed their mind about the legitimacy of the vote if they didn't like the outcome – you know, similarly in a family, I you know I can have my children vote. Uh, if I don't like how it comes out, I can just say you know I'm in charge here. Uh, I'm gonna. Yeah. But in fact, you know, in in most political realities, um, we don't use majority rule. We have a very complicated layering of institutional complexity interacting with majority rule, right? So we have two thirds. We have committees. We have. Multiple houses, we have a veto, right? We have the Electoral College. So the United States is not a very um, majoritarian place, even though I think in no our mind yeah, – no, no, no place that survives is majoritarian. That, that's what is striking is all countries that survive have what are in effect ways of controlling this problem. And so the, the insight that comes from this is you can explain what look like odd institutions because – the, when, you know, no one may have understood it. This is a very Hayekian point. No one may have understood that they're getting stability from this. and they're, they're getting a determinate choice. Now, it might be arbitrary, but they're getting what looks like a determinate choice because the alternative is chaos. Endless cycling, things being put up for a vote again with a different outcome. Well, yeah, you know, what you get is – you probably wouldn't get cycling. What you would get is revolution because it doesn't seem legitimate. So the, we, we, we almost never observe endless cycling. What we do observe is a democracy where people say, I didn't agree to abide by this outcome, followed by revolution. So France in the 18th century and Egypt in the last five years, both have gone from democracies to dictatorships, partly because of their inability to come up with institutions that people accepted as legitimate. So it's, it's a harder problem than we act like it is. The United States just tells other countries, oh, you should become a democracy. Well, that's not what we did. What we did was we chose a set of pretty strongly anti-majoritarian institutions. Yeah. My guest today has been Mike Munger. His book is Choosing in Groups. Mike, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>